You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. This will be perhaps one of the more controversial episodes in this series this season, as the title is No Liberty for the Latinless. And we've often talked about the importance of studying the classics. Dr. Fleming, we are aware of your own personal biases in this matter. Uh, but it's also important for being for having familiarity with the great literary works, uh, history, philosophy. And while I agree that studying Latin is very important, especially for people like myself who will, will be going to Mass uh, tomorrow in Latin and uh, for the rest of my life, um, couldn't most people do just as well learning everything in translation? <clears throat> well... First of all, uh, there is a good deal of merit in teaching Latin in translation, but on the whole, I would say it's it's a different set of advantages, and they're rather lesser advantages. But I, before going on to that, I just want to say very briefly what uh, I was once in the pre- at a party with my dissertation director, the late Douglas Young. And he started to say something, and one of the department heads in classics department said, well, we all know, Douglas, you're a man of many opinions. And he said, I have no opinions. I only have uh, conclusions, which I have arrived at uh, after painstaking research and analysis. So in the same way, I would say I am a man without biases, just like uh, Douglas Young, Scottish nationalist Marxist, but he had all arrived at those decisions uh, by himself. So when I say there's two, they're different, uh, we're talking about apples and oranges. Um, that is, it's, it's good to know, uh, just as it's to some extent, even good to know the classics of Chinese literature or to read the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's much more important to be at least familiar with the stories of uh, classical antiquity and some of the history. But uh, for what I want to talk about today, which is intellectual development, the ability to think logically and clearly and express oneself coherently in English, learning the Latin language, no matter how poorly, may well be of greater value than many years of reading works in translation, much less getting multiple degrees from these colleges that teach the great books. I never get into so much trouble as when I meet a graduate of a great books college and I inform them that they haven't had an education. When uh, Fritz Freisler was one of the great violinists of the 20th century and an extremely amiable and kind man, uh, and when he was in New York, he got hit by a car. He was seriously injured, and as he came out of his coma, he could only speak Latin and Greek. By the way, what does that tell you about <laughs> about, about uh, ordinary Viennese Jews in that period that growing up to be a, a violinist, you nonetheless knew Greek and Latin? Mm. Well, I, I would say that this alien Austrian Jew, uh, by the way, who later converted and was never hostile to Christianity, when uh, post-war, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of attempts to go after people like uh, Villa Mengelberg, the Dutch conductor who did not oppose a German takeover of 
of the Netherlands, or Walter Gieseking, or uh, Furtwängler, all these people, some of whom had uh, played concerts for the Nazis, etc. And he he went when 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 there was an attempt to boycott them. He he basically told his friend Otto Rubinstein to leave it alone. That it's up to every man to make his own decision, and we don't know what's in his heart. And uh, and uh, not long after, I believe it was that uh, Chrysler converted. But this alien, uh, alien non-Christian was in a better position to understand the world uh, that we live in, uh, the world of, uh, that is the evolving American world, than a U.S. senator or a brilliant scientist who had not studied Latin, much less learned it well enough to speak it when it, coming out of a coma. Well, this might provoke the response of our catchphrase for the show that surely you must be joking, Dr. Fleming, but I'm sure that... You have a case to make here. Mm. Well, yes, in fact, I do. No matter how uh, uh, bizarre it may seem, I once offered during the height of a, a lot of school controversy here in northern Illinois, where I became temporarily a uh, local celebrity helping to lead a movement to take our school district out of the out from under the control of a federal magistrate, not even a judge, but an appointed magistrate. And so because people claimed that I didn't care about the education of minority children. So I made a, I went on the radio and offered uh, to, to, to have a class for any black family that wanted to send their children to learn Latin, which would give them great advantages in their future career. And the, the, the local talk radio people, including the conservative talk radio hosts, thought this was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. I was going to say, must have been Snickers all around. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, had one, I had one partial taker. One, one mother called up. I think she was looking for babysitting. Now... <clears throat> Fritz Kreisler was, in fact, a very civilized man in every sense of the word. Uh, without being a Christian, he was a citizen of that great country that has no borders, the country that used to be known as Christendom. While uh, someone, the people born in this country who served in the army and created megachurch empires, say Pat Robertson or any of the current Elmer Gantries that are disfigure American Christianity, Joel Osteen and people of that ilk, uh, that Fritz Chrysler was, uh, was a man who could understand even his adopted country better than, uh, than those people. Is that not a bit of an exaggeration, Dr. Fleming? I never exaggerate. <laughs> so you'd say Latin is a, is a, is a special magic language uh, in the way that people who are into the Kabbalah might uh, think about Hebrew? Um, actually, uh, I, I don't think that at all. You know, as you, as you know, Stephen, uh, uh, Kabbalists believe that uh, Hebrew is the language God used in creating the world. And therefore, if you say certain things in Hebrew, they happen. Because, you know, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this is the, the foundation of, of their way of thinking. By the way, adopted by uh, black magicians in the Renaissance, uh, somebody like uh, Pico de la Barandola learned Hebrew so he could know the language of power. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I would say the opposite of that. That approach, that is that Latin is a kind of magic language, like the language of, of God, is a serious mistake, and it's made by many traditional Catholics 
some of whom seem to be arguing that somehow Latin is the original language of the church. It's perfectly clear that Greek is the language of scripture and that the most important apostolic fathers and the earliest uh, Christian liturgical forms were in Greek. <clears throat> Greek seems to have been the language of the Roman church for some time. You know, many of the early popes during several periods uh, uh, before and after Constantine were Hellenic and Greek was their natural language. Now, in the church, the traditionalist church I go to, our priest always prefaces his readings of the epistle of the gospel uh, when, he, when he does the translation in English. He says, a translation of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. And I, I, I've never worked up uh, <laughs> the nerve to ask him, is he really under the impression that, uh, that the Vulgate Latin is not a translation? <laughs> <laughs> this, I, this was the same cleric who gave you four sermons on Hillary Clinton. Dr. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I shouldn't make fun of the poor young man. I mean, you know, as you get older, you 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 begin to get somewhat jaundiced in viewing these people. <laughs> I do remember. I do remember my friend uh, Robert Nisbet, the great uh, conservative uh, political sociology and sociologist. And he was very favorable toward Christianity, but he never went to church. And um, he had been an Episcopalian, and, uh, and I, I, uh, I asked him one day. I said, "Bob, uh, why, um, you know, you, 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 you know, you, you should think more seriously about about going going to church and finding a church home." And he said, "He said I did for ten years." He said, "But I found I could not endure the ignorance and effrontery of the clergy." I tell you, if I couldn't endure the ignorance and effrontery of clergymen, I would never set foot in a church. <laughs> uh, I'm reminded sometimes there's a there's a, a a way to correct situations, and sometimes there's not. But the, the French find a way to express their opinion. I remember being at mass on a weekday in Advent. And for those who don't know, in Roman Catholicism, during Advent, the Gloria is not said if it's a ferial day or if it's a day that relates to the season. And our, our priest, who is actually a wonderful priest, quite, quite learned and quite holy, he started the Gloria, and from the back row, one of our older parishioners did the typical French tut-tut-tisk. <laughs> and uh, and was sh- I, I turned and I, I just caught him shaking his head. Father heard the tut tut tisk and caught himself, you know, one sentence into the Gloria, yeah. and then you know bent down, kissed the altar, you know, and did did and just basically pretended that he hadn't started the Gloria. But in that case, the the disapproval uh, <laughs> had a had a helpful liturgical purpose. Uh, I you know I am not suggesting that you should have tutted. Uh, no. when, when the, but uh, sometimes there is uh, room for correction. I, um, I've, I've often felt that there should be designated people in every church parish who had the right to raise their hand during a sermon. So, excuse me, excuse me, can you really be making this statement? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hesitate to propose it. <clears throat> 
Now, our young priest's language, I mean, it's, of course, incredible ignorance to say anything like that, but it seems designed, I'm sure he doesn't mean it this way, to encourage superstitious credulity, like Latin is mumbo-jumbo. It's, you know, in the, in the movie Braveheart, uh, the, the uncle, William Wallace's uncle says, well, was it a good funeral that your father had? And uh, he said, well, uh, you know, he starts to describe it. He says, no, did the, was it in Latin? And he said, yes, it was all in Latin. He says, good, good. Then it was a good funeral. Well, I, on one level, I strongly agree with that. But, but on the magical level, like, for example, a, like God doesn't hear the prayers of people who speak English or French, this, uh, this becomes uh, childish. From the strictly Christian point of view, as I pointed out a few seconds ago, Greek is vastly more important than Latin. And if that were the only point of view we were going to be talking about, that is, what can get you in touch with the most important period of the history of the church, say the first five or six hundred years, well, then I would say forget Latin, learn Greek. But that is not the only reason why learning Latin is so important. But if it is a dead language, Dr. Fleming, and as you say, not even a primarily scriptural language, then why is it so important? I would say it's not simply important. There are many things like, you know, washing your neck and scrubbing your fingernail, brushing your teeth. Those things are important. And many things are important. Many things are important studies, such as mathematics and logic. But... Um, I would say the study of Latin is essential to mental sanity and mental clarity, especially for us. First of all, the problem uh, which everybody says, you know, Latin's a dead language. I mean, when everybody who used to study Latin all learned to say, you know, Latin is, is, is dead. It's dead as it can be. First it killed the Romans and now it's killing me. I mean, I, I said that when I was a, a kid. <laughs> um, but even this being a dead language, this is an asset. Now, by the way, it clearly wasn't dead for Fritz Kreisler, who woke up speaking it. It wasn't dead for Dr. Johnson, who just spent all of his conversations in with learned men in France who couldn't understand his French. He had quite good written uh, French, but, he, but uh, he spoke it as if it were English, and so he decided he would have all his conversations while he was in French, in Latin. Dead languages, the great advantage of them is that they are dead. That is, they are fixed once and for all, and usually for different purposes, a specific period or dialect is chosen. For, you know, for many, uh, for many, many centuries, for example, some form of Attic Greek, uh, either uh, pure Attic or a we other watered down Attic known as Koine, was uh, the lingua franca of civilization. And so, you know, for the Greek church, they used a kind of uh, upper level Koine, whereas for in the Byzantine Empire, if you wanted to write history, you tried to write like Thucydides. So they, they, they know in a dead language, you know the meaning of words. They're fixed. Whereas in a vernacular language, the meaning of words is constantly changing, especially you know, we've had, say, from middle to modern English, let's say from a little before Chaucer to today, or if we just want to be, say, modern English from about 1550 today, you know, that's about five centuries. And the meaning of words is constantly shifting. And the same thing has happened in French and Italian and German and Russian. And this may partly explain Pope Francis' failure to understand something so basic as the Lord's Prayer. 
you know, he he wants to he wants to amend translations of lead us not into temptation because he doesn't know what the word temptation means because he's not an educated person. See, once upon a time, if Francis had learned good Latin, you know, instead of whatever they taught him in that seminary he went to, if he had learned decent Latin, he would know that <laughs> that temptation does not mean simply enticement. So. It, uh, and he doesn't have the advantage that you should have from learning uh, a fixed dead language. I mean, in my case, for example, I can read French. I've been able to read French since in my early teens. Uh, <clears throat> but I have serious trouble trying to read medieval French. Uh, but I have even more trouble hearing the patois spoken by Parisian kids that you probably hang out with. Uh, the last time I had dinner with a group of uh, college students, it was it was agony. So I learned, by the way, I learned a bunch of this. I had a record, uh, some recordings of uh, modern French, you know, not youth slang, but just the way people talk. So I tried it out on uh, Claude Paulin. Having uh, having lunch with him in Paris, and he wrinkled his face up as if as if he had eaten something rotten. And he looked at me and he said, "My God, where did you learn to talk like that?" And I told him, "I you know I had this tape and I was I was trying it out on him." And he said, "Oh, you talk like my students. It's disgusting." <laughs> so uh, to 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 get away from just uh, goofing around, my point is that uh, Latin. And Greek are uh, are fixed, and uh, and as is Sanskrit. I, I was once I went to a concert once. It was a weird band, and the uh, the the drummer was actually a Hindu doctor in Chicago from from India, and he also is playing the tabla, you know, the traditional uh, uh, Indian drum. And 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 I bought him a drink in in between, and he said, "You know, you poor Americans and modern Europeans, you you don't have a classical language." He said, "We have Sanskrit. You have nothing." And he said, "My grandmother had a whole library bigger than this whole bar and restaurant, uh, all in Sanskrit." And I said, "Well, what do you mean? We have Latin and Greek?" And he said, "Oh, come now, you know, nobody knows Latin and Greek today." And I said, "Not only do we know Latin and Greek, but we are all forced to memorize lines of Sanskrit poetry." And he said, Pshaw. and he started, you know, contemptuous. So I broke into my very badly pronounced uh, seven lines I memorized from the Mahabharata uh, when I took Sanskrit. Uh, I had him going for about five minutes, uh, partially convinced that all Americans secretly knew Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. But uh, it is tr knowledge of a dead language is extremely extremely valuable because it allows you always to test the nonsense in the contemporary patois you're speaking in against something that is fixed and perfect and beautiful. Well, is, is this advantage, is this unique to Latin in the modern world? No, no. We have, uh, you know, the Greek, uh, Greek, for the Romans was their classical language, which you know Cicero is constantly throwing Greek into his letters. Uh, and by the way, uh, classical Greek was very important for, for in the Byzantine period, and um, until say a generation ago, among educated uh, modern Greeks, Old Church Slavonic essential in the uh, in the Slavic world as a as a fixed point. I <clears throat> I was looking through a prayer book uh, in for the Serbian Orthodox Church. And they have a little appendix explaining why orthodoxy is the only true religion. 
And uh, they said they have a few grudging things. Well, you know, the Catholic Church is right about some things. For example, they have a dead classical language, as do the Greeks, and we have Old Church Slavonic. And they made the very point that this allows you to have a fixed meaning of words that cannot be changed by passing whim or by the change of idiom. And therefore, it's extremely dangerous. As my studies of, of scripture, and including key, key parts like the Lord's Prayer, where line after line is misunderstood because people cannot understand the Greek text anymore, uh, or even, even the Latin text, and make very foolish misinterpretations. For example, we've talked about this, Stephen, saying, uh, you know, lead us not to temptation and deliver us from evil. Well, it's pretty clear in Greek that evil is the hoporeros, the evil one, the, the devil. And that's clear, by the way, in the Slavonic version. And, you know, a careful study line by line of scripture in, in its Greek original allows you, uh, it doesn't necessarily give you profound insight, but it allows you to avoid the elementary mistakes that so many uh, religious leaders today are making. Well, and I remember we've we've discussed this before. I had a brief um, stint. A stint's not quite the right word, but I a brief stay maybe with uh, a Ruthenian right Byzantine church uh, in Anaheim, and they uh, they like most of the um, Eastern Catholic churches that use the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom were using this old Slavonic that uh, isn't spoken anymore, but is also one of these uh, ancient uh, dead languages that has this particular and special use. Yes, in fact, uh, the, 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 uh, the kind of official Slavonic of their, of their liturgy and uh, other writings probably never was spoken. You know, it was sort of created by uh, Greek and Latin speakers uh, hanging out with Slavs, especially Slavs uh, north of Thessaloniki and, uh, you know, in the southern Balkans and then going all the way up to uh, Bohemia and trying to make sense. You know, in other words, they looked at they looked at this mass of dialect, which they barely understood and they and, and tried to learn. And then they reduced it to a, a kind of grammatical and semantic order, which became Old Church Slavonic. And it's quite a lovely language. Well, some might say, Dr. Fleming, that a language that isn't living can't inspire creativity. Yeah, I hear that all the time, and uh, and I, you know, of course, I look around me and I wonder, oh, you mean the creative people like Andy Warhol in in American society, or all these great artists and poets and musicians? You know, if you ask, if you ask, uh, I, I ask an, uh, uh, an American, say, high school teacher of literature, and uh, first of all, most of them can't name any living American poet. And if they can name a living American poet, they can't quote a line because the, the, the stuff is so bad. That's, that's American uh, creativity. Um, creativity is a funny thing. You know, actually, Dr. Johnson and Milton and even Baudelaire wrote some very beautiful poetry in Latin. But that's not the direction I'm going. There are creative peoples who sort of invent civilizations by themselves. There are very few. The Greeks, the Sumerians. Who, who started uh, the civilization of the Middle East. Uh, and, of course, they were followed by the Semitic Akkadians, and their language became a classical language. 
early Indians and Chinese, these were these were creators and the Egyptians, these were creators of civilization. Other peoples have to follow in their footsteps and be content to be disciplined by by the predecessor. So an Assyrian or Babylonian had to, if he wanted to study or be a poet, had to learn Akkadian and usually Sumerian. And, a, you know, a Japanese had to actually learn <coughs> Chinese because the, the characters are the same. And I'm told that in some cases in um, classical Japanese literature, that it's not known exactly how to re- how to pronounce the ideograms because uh, they they throw in so much Chinese. And so I would say that similarly, it's virtually impossible for anyone except somebody who's very lucky really to know English, that is to speak it effectively, to to read it with comprehension without having studied Latin. Well, as someone who, who studied English before he studied Latin, I, I'm not in the best position to to dispute this, Dr. Fleming, but I, I, I suppose most people are going to react uh, uh, similarly to how they have at various parts of this episode with disbelief. Yeah. Uh, and and again, we're going to ask you to, to make your case. The um, I brought up the uh, example of Fritz Kreisler earlier, um, and uh, I, 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 partly because I'm very fond of him as, as a musician and uh, always have been. I, I, I don't want to waste our, our uh, listeners' time, but I remember when I was in high school, somebody told me the story that uh, Chrysler was asked to perform at a rich person's party in New York. And and uh, she said, I'll give you five hundred dollars. And he said, Mad- well, madam, that well, it was quite a lot of money in 1940. Say, madam, that's very generous. That's very kind. Of course, you won't be expected to mingle with my guests. To which Chrysler replied, well, in that case, it's only two hundred and fifty. But uh, <clears throat> <laughs> we don't uh, we don't make make them like that. Chrysler had the capacity for learning and understanding English better, I would argue, than a Latinless PhD in English. Because the, the people I meet who are English professors, very few of them have a very accurate understanding of the language. And let's face it, if you can't read English, if, if you really don't know the language, you can't read uh, Dr. Johnson, you can't read Shakespeare and Milton. Heck, you can't, you can't read T.S. Eliot or Ernest Hemingway. 60 to 70 percent of everyday La- of, of Latin, of English, excuse me, 60 to 70 percent of our vocabulary uh, is derived either directly from Latin or indirectly by way of Norman French or, or uh, legal, uh, regular French. And this is especially true, and we've talked about this a little bit in other discussions, this is especially true of the more difficult vocabulary. We all know what a tree is, but not everybody's sure what uh, an arborist is. And so all our technical language, all all our professional language comes mostly from Latin and a little bit uh, from Greek. So it's very hard to, to understand uh, English at, as has been written for 500 years without knowing a good deal of Latin. Well, apart from Amo, Ama, Samat, Amamu, Samati, Samat, wouldn't classes in Latin roots be enough? Um, no. This is, I, th- I think they are one of the great wastes of time. I've seen them, I've looked at the books on them, I've even listened to a few online. Because for one thing, you don't get the grammatical structure of of Latin, which underlies the grammatical structure of traditional correct English. 
Now, you know, if you ask a linguist, if I talk about a bogus profession, linguistics, there are people who actually study Latin, uh, language and they are technically known as philologists. Ling linguists are theorists of language and they will tell you language is what is spoken and there are, and there are no prescriptive rules. Well, this is, you know, okay, you could say that, but that's like saying, uh, morality is the way people live, and some people murder children, other people adopt children. It, you know, it's just what whatever they do. It doesn't matter. Um, prescriptive grammar is a, a, makes is part of the art of language. Language is an art, not simply a phenomenon to be studied. English, unfortunately, we had this horrible event in the history of the English language. It's the Battle of Hastings. It's 1066. The Normans came over, knocked off the Anglo-Saxon upper class. The English were reduced more or less to illiteracy for several hundred years. And, uh, and increasingly, anybody who <clears throat> spoke an articulate vernacular was speaking some form of Norman French, perhaps mixed in with some some old English roots. And when, when English finally bubbles back up to the service, it, it's basically lost its grammar and it's lost its structure. So the way that they began to impose structure on English and to make it uh, capable of making fine distinctions, uh, they began to imitate the grammar of Latin. And so that's why all these very, uh, very difficult and complicated rules that developed in the course of several hundred years from the between the collapse of, of English and its rise again, finally, uh, say, in 16th century England. So since our grammar is an imitation of English, you can't really write grammatically. For example, the distinction between shall and would, should and would has practically disappeared in the United States. We don't we don't know what these things mean because we, we, we don't have a knowledge of the grammar that's uh, evolved. And so you can't make fine logical or semantic distinctions. Even our time sequences have, have, uh, have uh, been messed up. You know, we don't, we've lost our future perfect. And for, to a large extent, we've lost our past perfect, but partly because we no longer get trained on Latin. And as a result, you, I have to ask people, well, now, you, when you say uh, you did this and then you did that, which came first? Because in the old days, you'd say, you could say, uh, after I had spent three days studying this subject, I then passed an exam. But now we say, I studied the subject, I did this, I did that. It's all, there's, 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 no there's no correlation and there's no strict specification of time. And it makes it very difficult to read even, say, Booth Tarkington or Scott Fitzgerald for somebody who doesn't, uh, hasn't, hasn't, hasn't been schooled in the Latin tradition. Are there any exceptions to this? <laughs> yeah, there, there, are, uh, there are people who write and speak very beautiful English. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not so true today, but they, there, it has been true in the past without knowing Latin. And these are largely people who grow up in families or communities where good English has been preserved, but by the way, by preserved by people who had studied the classics. 
Uh, Winston Churchill, being not very bright intellectually, apparently, had real trouble <clears throat> re, uh, learning the classics. And so in whatever public school he went to, public school in the English sense, you know, school that is partly funded by the crown or and has a public recognition, um, <clears throat> they got so tired of Winston's bad performance. I'm, I'm getting this from something he wrote that that he said he, he had the leisure to concentrate on, on uh, studying English. And so Churchill uh, became rather a, a, a master of English prose uh, without, knowing, without knowing the amount of Latin and Greek he should have. And there are uh, many <clears throat> examples of this uh, over the years. However, those communities, those families <clears throat> of articulate, correct speaking, uh, correct English speakers, uh, they're extremely rare now. I live in the in the uh, sort of semi upper Midwest, and uh, I've had to hire secretaries who say things like, uh, uh, "When I have came to Rockford," or, and uh, and they, and and I had a discussion with my colleagues. You know, you're letting this woman answer the phone. <laughs> this is supposed to be an organization that celebrates learning, and uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not talking about somebody who is mentally retarded or. Especially, uh, especially deprived, but uh, the grammar in this part of the country is astounding, and uh, therefore, uh, somebody who doesn't study Latin in a place like Rockford, or in fact, or New Jersey, or California, the whole state of California, is a sewer of a, of a, an English patois that that makes my my hair stand on end and my skin crawl when I hear it. Right. I, I believe the affirmative response would be, yeah, dude. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> or right on, man. Yeah. So um, naively learned English is a good thing. I learned English listening to my father. And when I took English classes in, in school, you know, in grammar school, middle school, and high school, um, I thought they were stupid and foolish because I already spoke correct English. But uh, one of the problems is I couldn't pass a test because you were supposed to look for errors and name rules. And that's not the way I learned English. I learned English by uh, speaking the way my father spoke. So I, by the age of 12, I had a pretty, pretty large vocabulary, assisted partly by my affection for Gilbert and Sullivan. If you really want to build up your vocabulary, uh, you know, just start memorizing uh, patter songs from uh, from the Mikado or the, the Pinafore or Iolanthe. But um, learning Latin, of course, gave me the theoretical foundation. It gave me the, the, the skeleton, the bones. And so it allowed me to, uh, to, to pre proceed. But as valuable, as important as it is to speak correct English around children and to set them a good example, um, it is a bit like naively transmitted moral values that people don't know how to defend. It's now it's very good to set the best. It's important. It's essential to set the best example you can for your children morally as well as grammatically. Obviously, it's more important to set a good moral example, although I'm not always so sure that uh, that the gap between morality and grammar is as great as people would like to believe. But uh, on the other hand, if you just say, do this, do that, here's what, or people don't do that sort of thing, you know, when you get into a group where they all do that sort of thing, it becomes just, just saying, that's not the way my daddy did it, 
is not perhaps good enough. And if you if you are trained, that is, if your mind is trained and if you understand eventually, you know, sometime in your late teens and early 20s, you begin to understand why lying, stealing, cheating, committing adultery is not a good thing. It's not you're not simply obeying something because daddy isn't around anymore to say, don't do that. And if you're not religious, then you don't have a super daddy to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Whereas if you're brought, if you're a well-formed personality, your character has been well-formed. And then you can also, you know, some, a few at least of the reasons why it's wrong. Oh, say to, as a prank, to pretend to be uh, a, a victim of a hostage crisis and call the tele call the police and have them crash into somebody's house, which this happened by two days ago, and, and, and somebody got killed by the police because they had been pranked. All right, some of us know you're not supposed to do that. Apparently, large numbers of people in the city of Los Angeles do not know this. So it's important the study of Latin grammar. It gives us uh, a strength, a basis, an understanding uh, that we wouldn't otherwise have if we simply know English. Again, it's very important to grow up learning correct English, but learning classical languages gives you the, the structure to defend it. You know, everything, grammar, morals, es, es, you know, culture, literature, all standards have collapsed since the 1960s in English as much uh, in the in English grammar, as much as in morality, as uh, as in uh, the practice of the various arts. And so this is a time, if there's ever been a time in the history of the world, when we have to start groping towards sanity by use of the most rigorous tools, this is this is it. And so this is the time when, above all, if you really want to grow up sane or teach yourself sanity, Learning Latin, and, and, and if you can do it, learn, learn, throw in as much Greek as you can. It's really essential for, I think, for, for mental sanity. And frankly, I, I, um, I, 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 I can't say that I really uh, would like to trust my fate to political and social leaders who, uh, who do not have Latin. Well, that would clear out Congress pretty quickly. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would be like demanding no, 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 nobody who we can't. We don't want anybody who makes millions of dollars by uh, through chicanery. Well, you know, the last the last major political figure. I don't think he knew much Latin, but he was obsessed with the classics. It was uh, Bobby Bird of uh, West Virginia on the floor of Congress. He was constantly quoting Cicero. And uh, the, the, former, and the former Grand Wizard. Yes. And by the way, if there's one thing I get tired of you Republicans doing, it's to say, well, Harry Truman, Southerner, was a uh, was a uh, Ku Kluxer. Robert Byrd was a Ku Kluxer. Everybody's a Ku Kluxer at one at one point. You know, the, the Klan at its largest population, the, 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 the top states of the Klan were Indianapolis, Illinois and Wisconsin. It was an anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish organization, basically anti, it was a nativist, anti-immigrant. The old clan in the 1860s and early 70s 
was, of course, a, uh, a patriotic organization to restore order in the in the concerts, conquered South. The later Klan was uh, were basically middle class people who were frightened by mass immigration. They were usually shopkeepers. You know, it's, it's your uncle, your grandfather. They were they were all clans. But I've 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 come into old bookstores and antique stores, and if you look in the attic, sometimes you open a box and it's an entire clan regalia, because the clan was was really big here. And so, of course, people who people on the way up in the Midwest and to a large extent, West Virginia is the Midwest rather than the South. After all, they did secede from Virginia uh, at the outbreak of the war between the states. It's a it's a typical phenomenon. And it, blaming someday, someday they're going to say, you know, uh, Stephen, your family, I understand, used to fly the stars and stripes. Don't you know that people traded slaves out of the stars and stripes? And I would correct them and say, thankfully, we flew the stars and bars. But, but, but to, just to correct the record, when Dr. Fleming said, you Republicans, what he referred to was the one day in my life that I was registered as a Republican because Kansas is a closed caucus, and I wanted to vote for Dr. Paul. And I registered as a Republican. I actually got to meet Dr. Paul. He came and spoke. Uh, at the local caucus that I voted at, and then I went home and unregistered as a Republican. So Dr. Fleming was partially correct. Uh, actually, you know, I have registered twice as a Republican in order to vote uh, in order to vote in primary. I voted. I, I was going to. I voted for uh, my uh, friend Pat Buchanan. I, I once voted for Ronald Reagan, and I'm proud to say I've I have voted for the uh, the clown the current clown in the White House. <laughs> And, and by the way, every, nothing he has done has caused me to have one second of embarrassment. He's the president. He's the president we deserve, but he's also the president we need. <laughs> one of our uh, one of our uh, gold members refers to him as the Orange Caesar. <laughs> Good for him. Good. Well, as always, Dr. Fleming, thank you for uh, another episode in the series. It's our penultimate in this season. And we'll look forward to the next episode and finishing up our season for Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. See you then. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.